You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Luke chapter 7. That's where we're at today. Luke chapter 7. If I've never met you before, welcome. My name is Norm. We're in this Jesus Encounters series. We're looking at various encounters that Jesus has in the gospel of Luke. We're looking at Luke 7 verses 1 to 10 today, but it's going to be a little bit before we, um, before we get there this morning. I want to begin by reading something, an article uh, out of Relevant Magazine that showed up this past April. I'll Just read a section of it. Christians are falling right and left. Evangelicals and Protestants alike are grasping feebly to understand what is causing this wave of evolving faith, popularly referred to as deconstruction. In short, deconstruction is a popular term that refers to the practice of revisiting and rethinking long-held beliefs, specifically in the Christian faith. Richard Rohr is perhaps the most well-known Christian leader to popularize the term. Rohr often describes healthy faith development as one that undergoes three stages. The first is construction. This is building your belief system and worldview. The next is deconstruction, challenging that worldview and subsequent beliefs. And then thirdly, reconstruction, rebuilding a new, more holistic set of beliefs and worldview. Uh, Few years ago, deconstruction was a new term gaining some ground in public. Today, it is a culture-wide phenomenon with thousands of books, podcasts, and social media accounts dedicated to it. Every other week, it seems, there is new buzz about the next prominent Christian influencer that is renouncing their faith and stepping into a, a new life. Joshua Harris, author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. By the way, I was just texting with that guy a couple days ago. He lives in Carisdale. I saw him. I was going to give him a ride, but he had his pods in. He didn't hear me honk. Anyways, that's an aside note. Um, uh, So Joshua Harris has an example of one who stepped in uh, away from the faith. Uh, Rhett Link of the hit YouTube channel, Good Mythical Morning. Even famous worship leaders like Audrey Assad and Marty Sampson of Hillsong. Deconstruction is no longer a fad. It is not simply a season, and it is not going away anytime soon. A few people over the last few months have asked me my opinion. What are my thoughts on this fascination today with deconstruction? And my initial response is that I'm probably not against the idea as much as you might think. And the reason I'm not is because Jesus is the biggest deconstructionist that the world has ever seen. No one challenged worldviews and religious ideologies more than Jesus. It got him killed. He was killed because of it, and part of the mob that killed him were the highly religious. I also think that those who have been raised in Christian homes have to make sure that their faith is their faith and not a parroted version of their parents' faith because your parents' faith won't save you if it's if it's not your faith too. And so we all must know why we believe what we believe or if we believe at all. And sometimes that means we have to deconstruct some things and rebuild from there. The problem I have, however, with today's deconstruction movement is that it looks nothing like the deconstruction work of Jesus. 
The main difference between the two is that Jesus deconstructed by taking people back to the word, while deconstruction today is an elevation of people above the word. And honestly, that practice is not new. It's been going on for 2,000 years. Longer than that, just, just taking a look at the church age. Let me give you a modern day example from a blogger. He's also a pastor in a, in a church. This is what he writes. You can read it behind me. My hermeneutic, hermeneutic, big fancy word, it comes from a Greek word, means to interpret. So interpretation of, of the scriptures. My hermeneutic is never simply, what did Paul or John or Peter say? It's what is the spirit saying today through them that might be different than what was being said before. Our call as followers of Jesus is to do our best to discern what the Holy Spirit was doing back then and reinterpret, reimagine what it means for us in our time and in our place, our community and cultural moment. It's okay to have a hermeneutic that goes beyond specific verses in the Bible. It's okay to disagree with the authors of the Bible. It's okay to let experience, culture, science, and community take us beyond where the Bible goes. Now, although there are small, some small, very small bits and pieces of that quote that I don't out and out disagree with, I do in a big way with the overarching premise. And again, I go back to Jesus. Jesus lived in a culture. We all live in a culture. That's why he told parables about sheep because he lived in a culture where there is sheep and a lot of wheat and things like that. He lived in a culture, he was influenced by the culture in that way, but he never allowed the culture to determine how to evaluate God's word, but used God's word to speak into the culture and make sense of it. He believed in the transcendent. He was the transcendent. And he used God's transcendent, you know the word transcendent? It's, it's, it's not a part of us, it's something bigger than us. He used God's transcendent word to press in on culture and, hear me, the traditions and the culture of the religious most of all. Let me give you some examples of this. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19 about marriage and divorce, remember that whole conversation about Moses? Do you remember what Jesus said first? He responded by saying, have you not read? And he takes him back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2. In another place, that's the Pharisees. Talking of Pharisees, we're talking about the the religious leadership, the religious aristocracy at the time. Another place, the Sadducees. They're part of the Sanhedrin as well. They come to Jesus and they come to Jesus wanting to talk about marriage in heaven and the resurrection and all of that. And Jesus says to them, you do not know the word of God. At his arrest, as he's being taken away, some people who are with him attempt to keep him from going with them. Jesus' response All this has happened so that the writing of the prophets would be fulfilled. Let me give you another example in Mark chapter 7. Again, you can read this behind me. It's a longer text. The Pharisees, there they are again, and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. 
for the, Mark adds this commentary, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and keep, like the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live, hear it, according to to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands, he answered them. Here's his answer. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. Hear what Jesus says next. Teaching as doctrines, human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. What, hear me, what Jesus is saying to us today is that ironically, no one is more Pharisee-like, scribe-like, than when they write that it's okay to let experience or culture or community take you beyond the Bible. They do the same thing with those that the Pharisees did with their traditions, and what they do midtown is they abandoned the word, abandoned the word of God. Jesus came to deconstruct that practice. Then he continues to seek to deconstruct that practice today. But, and I'll get to Luke 7 eventually. But, in saying all this, I also want you to know that when I look around the church today, I'm not overly surprised that some are walking away. When prominent Christian rock stars, quote unquote rock stars in the Christian faith walk away from their faith or individuals like Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias or, or, or Carl Lentz are outed for years and years and years of sexual impropriety or when pastors who for years and years have talked about their, their angst or their, their disagreement with the prosperity gospel, and then you find out that they're receiving salaries in the high six figures and even more, or when you hear about churches and networks and denominations that have been covering up events of sexual abuse and physical abuse and emotional abuse and, and spiritual abuse, people get cynical and understandably so. There's a reason why Jesus pronounced a woe on those who cause little ones to stumble. Why? Because people will cause others to stumble. And sometimes the little ones are six years old and sometimes they're 56 years old. And they walk away. Honestly, I'm not always excited to say I'm a part of our team either. Add on top of that the last couple of years of church infighting over COVID and then you sprinkle on top of that the great biblical illiteracy in the church today and drop that into today's culture where self is placed at the center. And again, I'm not surprised about hearing of those people walking away. It's a perfect cocktail. Throw that into the same vat, have people living in that. Why would they stay? So what do we do? 
About a thousand years ago, I was a youth pastor. Long time ago. Wood-burning TVs. It's great. <laughs> and I had a student in my youth ministry, great guy, part of our student leadership team, spent a lot of time with them. Um, but he came to me one day and he says, I'm, I'm walking away from the faith. No longer going forward. I asked him why. I was shocked. He pointed out a number of things at the time, uh, the apparent uh, hypocrisy of his parents, the hypocrisy he saw in the church, some own, his own personal struggles, um, the problem, problem of evil, just things that are very common out there, but he was going through them then. But again, it, it shocked me, and I, I sympathized with him, but I didn't really know how to respond to him. But in a moment, after a few a few seconds, I finally said to him, but what do you do with Jesus? Like, I get, all, I get all that other stuff. What do you do with Jesus, man? Charles Templeton, some of you may know that name. Charles Templeton has taken you back um, a while ways. Uh, he was a, an evangelist in the 1940s and 50s, uh, a good friend of Billy Graham, but everybody said Charles Templeton was far more gifted than Billy Graham, but Charles Temple, Templeton walked away from the faith. In Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, he interviews Charles Templeton many decades later, um, and this is, what, this is what he says. At the end of his interview with Templeton, Strobel asked him a similar question to what I asked my the youth that I worked with, how, how do you assess Jesus? He replied, there have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. He's the most, and then he stopped. And then he started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered, always oh, gets me choked up, uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me, his shoulders bobbed as he wept. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hands dismissively, finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. Why, why am I beginning this way? Why am I spending all the time on the front end beginning this way? Because these are the times that we live in. And, and we, can either, we can either speak into it or ignore it. We can huddle, lots of churches do. We can speak into it or we can huddle, but I don't want to huddle and I don't think you want to huddle too. Also because I sympathize. Also because like the Corinthians, we have our Peter and Paul and Apollos' camps today with many in the church who follow them. And sometimes it seems follow them even more stridently than they follow Jesus himself. And when they fall and walk away, so do many with them. And so what do I want to do? Well, I want to take you to Jesus, man. Because people will let you down. Your Christian heroes will let you down. The church will let you down. Your pastors will let you down. Your parents will let you down. You will let yourself down. 
And so I want to speak into this. And so I want to take you to Jesus. But I don't want, you, I don't want to take you to some blogger or YouTuber's version of Jesus. I want to take you to the Jesus of the scriptures and encounter him there because there's just too much crap out there proclaiming a Jesus, propagating a Jesus that's not Jesus. And you may not know it because truthfully, you haven't picked up your Bible in months or years. And so you're easy prey. And I don't say that to chide you. I say that because I want to help you. And I think we want to help each other. So let's go to the Bible. Luke 7. Verses 1 to 10, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> All right, good. You were listening last week. That was, a t- that was a test. That was a test. Verse 1, when he, that's Jesus, had concluded, concluded saying all this, that's a reference back to chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6, to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. So we're back there. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another come and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. So we're in this encounter series. And so this encounter is between Jesus and a centurion, although they never meet face to face. First off, what's a centurion? Really simple. They are a high-ranking officer in the Roman Empire who had under their command a hundred soldiers, a century of soldiers. Wasn't always exactly a hundred. The term was used somewhat loosely, but it described a company of, of soldiers. Interestingly, and some of you know this, centurions come up in the New Testament often, and they are always talked about favorably. Like, for example, at the death of Jesus, while Jesus is on the cross, it's a centurion of all people that declares, surely this is the Son of God. You go to Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a centurion, and he and his family usher in what is the Gentile explosion of the early church. If you go to the end of Acts, Acts chapter 27, after that whole shipwrecked event of Paul, it's a centurion, again, of all people, who helps Paul out. They're good guys. And this one is a a good guy too. The centurion in in Luke chapter chapter 7. But what he also is, not only a good guy, he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. Probably Italian, maybe Greek. And he was a soldier for the Roman Empire. And it's 
All of those reasons that make this encounter so amazing. This centurion has been stationed in Capernaum. He and his hundred soldiers with him. What was their job? Their job was to keep the peace. However and whatever way that took. Also, their job was to make sure that taxes were collected. That was their job. And for those reasons, and others as well, the Romans were hated by the Jewish people, but especially the soldiers that carried out their orders. And the reputation was terrible. You go back to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist's ministry. He's calling people to repentance. He's baptizing people. And he's telling them, live a life in accordance with what repentance should lead to. And other, all people groups are coming in. What should this look like in my life? What should it look like in my life? A group of soldiers come to John and say, what does this look in, like in our life? And his answer is, stop forcibly taking people's money. That's their reputation. They're not good guys. But the locals don't hate this centurion. Because of what we read of in verse 5, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. This is highly unusual. Uh, Romans, those who made up the empire, they don't like Israel. They don't love Israel, certainly. They put up with Israel. Israel was an income stream for them. Israel was a pain in the butt to the Romans. So they didn't love it. They put up with it, and they certainly didn't build a local synagogue for them, but that's what we read about this centurion. He loves them, and he's built them a synagogue. That's sort of prelim. As we go deeper in this text, for those of you that like taking notes, I want a very simple, extremely simple outline today. I want us to to notice three things about this centurion. I want us to notice what the centurion requests, that's number one, what the centurion reveals, and what the centurion receives. So three points, all beginning with the letter R, it's a perfect sermon, okay? That's how it works. So let's look at number one, what he requests. Well, his request shows up in verse three, we've already read it, but let me highlight it again. The centurion has heard about Jesus. And I I think it's safe to assume that he's heard about the healings of Jesus too. And so he puts out a request that Jesus come and heal his servant too. Jesus come and save the life of his servant is what the the group that goes to Jesus to meet him ask. We read in verse two that his servant, uh, the word doulos there, a bond servant, was highly valued by the centurion and he was about to die. It's really hard not to like the centurion in Luke 7. He's not only a generous guy, but he's a kind guy, and not only to the nation of Israel, but to his staff, and one of his staff is near death, and, he, and so he puts out a request to Jesus for Jesus to come, but he doesn't do it personally. He sends out a delegation, but what kind of delegation? It's a group of Jewish elders, probably done as a sign of respect to Jesus. He doesn't send any of his soldiers. He sends Jewish elders to a Jewish rabbi, Jesus. And I'm sure they went willingly. I'm sure they realized their good fortune of having this centurion stationed there. And so they go out at his request and they plead earnestly for Jesus to come. But put your eyes in verse 4. And notice again what 
the Jewish elders say when they get to Jesus. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this. Interesting. And why is he worthy? Well, because he loves the nation. And because he built a synagogue. And therefore, he's earned the favor of Jesus. That's what they think. That's what the Jewish elders of all things religious in Capernaum think. That the centurion has earned the good grace of Jesus. That thinking is about to be, to be deconstructed. Because that's not how the centurion thinks of himself. And that's not as we will see why Jesus heals his servant. Which leads, secondly, to what the centurion reveals. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus went with them. And when he, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be Healed. Two beautiful things revealed about the centurion here. One is his humility. The second is his faith. But it's really hard not to see the contrast between how he viewed himself and how the Jewish elders did. What did they say? He is worthy to have you grant this. That's what they think. That's on their end to, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you on his end. But who are they? Midtown, who are they? They are the religious leaders in Israel. And who is he? He's a soldier of Rome. They don't get it, but he does. And you can cut the irony of this with, with a knife. The centurion reveals that he, he didn't send out a delegation because it was beneath him to go. He says here that he sent out a delegation because he believed it was beyond him to go. Hang it right in your Bible. I'll race you to Luke 18. I'm there, because I had a ribbon open to it. It's great. Luke 7 is a living parable. We've talked about those. In Luke 18, there's a spoken parable, but it mirrors ours. Starting in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. With that ringing in your ears, go back to Luke chapter 
7. For it's this act of humility, this display of humility that leads to the centurion's display of faith. What's his display of faith? End of verse 7. Jesus, just say the word. Just say the word. You don't need to lay hands on my servant. You don't even need to come into the house, my house, and see the servant there. Just say the word and it will take place. It will happen. And interestingly, Luke doesn't even record Jesus saying be healed at that time. It seems that Jesus never said anything other than think it and it took place. Why such faith? Why does centurion have such faith? Well, the easy answer is found in verse 3 where it says that the centurion heard about Jesus. And again, as we said earlier, he probably heard about his healings, heard about his teaching and felt like, hey, maybe Jesus can heal my, my servant too. But I think there had to be something more. I, I, I think he'd heard about his healing, certainly, but I think he must have heard about his teaching and claims of Jesus to add on top of that his love for Israel. He, I am sure, had some background understanding of the promise of the coming Messiah. So when you put it all together, that's why we see this display of faith. So I don't think the centurion merely believed in what Jesus could do, but in who Jesus was. And who he believes Jesus was is revealed in verse 8. Take a look at it one more time. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. If you like underlining words in your Bible, underline that word too, because it's the most important word in this whole text. For what the centurion does with its use is he's making a comparison. He, the centurion, serves under the authority of the emperor of Rome. He serves at his pleasure. He serves to carry out his purposes. And by way of the authority given to him, he has people under him, a hundred soldiers. And if he says to a soldier, go, he goes, come, he comes, do this, he does it. And with the word to, he reveals that he knows who Jesus is. He too has been sent by another at his pleasure and to carry out his will. Jesus only does and says what the Father tells him to do and say. Like the centurion, he too is under authority, but also like the centurion, that authority is his authority over those placed under him. And so, like the centurion commands soldiers, Jesus commands, among other things, diseases. And so, Jesus, if you say go, the disease will go. That's verse 8. The Bible, the Gospels, record two times where Jesus is amazed. Just two times. Verse 9 is one of them. Take a look at it. Verse 9, we read, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. 
And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel, which we could add, you would expect to find it. A little bit more on that in a moment. The, the word amaze, thamazo, in the Greek means to marvel. Some of your translations have the word marvel there. It means to be astonished. But why Jesus was so astonished in verse 9 can only be fully appreciated if we take a look at the one other time that Jesus is amazed, is amazed in the gospel. Let me take you there. It's behind me. Mark 6, 1 to 6. He left there, that's Jesus, came to his hometown, that's Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are all these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I think that's a great throw in. And then it says this. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Amazed two times. And both times Jesus is amazed, it's connected to faith. Good faith, or great faith, excuse me, on one hand, and no faith on the other. Astonished, amazed here in this group with no faith because that group had such advantages and opportunities and knowledge. To borrow from Paul in Romans 9, they had the adoption and the glory and the covenants. They had the law. They had the temple services. They had the promises. And they longed for and they anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And yet they still didn't believe. And this amazed Jesus. Astonished him. The centurion, however, had none of that. If he had had any of that, Jesus wouldn't have been as amazed as he was, but he had none of that. He was a Gentile. He was a soldier in Rome. He was, he was raised in a polytheistic, hedonistic empire. No privileges, no advantages, and yet he had faith greater than anyone, even in Israel, according to Jesus himself. And this amazed him. Speaking of this elsewhere, Jesus says the following in Matthew 13, last text you'll see on the screen. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. For whoever has, that's in Luke 7, the centurion. And he's given more, as we will see. But whoever does not have what he has, it'll be taken away. Meaning they're not using it. They're not taking advantage. Our faith either strengthens and grows, or it lessens and weakens. 
So what have we looked at thus far? We've looked at the centurion's request, and we also have looked at what he reveals. What he receives is seen in verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Here's the reality. This is a biblical truth. That biblical truth is, I want to read it so I get it perfectly. Faith expressed is always faith rewarded. Maybe not always in the ways we wish, but always in the ways we need. The reason why is because we have a good heavenly father. Faith expressed is always faith rewarded. I got to wrap up. When you read the Gospels, for example, but really Gospels themselves more than other books, do you ever wonder why a certain event is recorded? And I know the answer, well, because the Holy Spirit is, I, I understand that. Listen, that's a given. But why does Luke, for example, of all the events that he could have chosen, pick this one? I mean, John writes that, hey, you know what? Everything was written about Jesus, what he did and what he said. The whole world couldn't contain the book. So why this? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One is, it's, uh, it's an example of what he's just taught ending chapter 6 in Luke, but we didn't look at that, so I'm not going to bog down on that. Here, here's another reason, and it really takes us full, full circle and helps us to understand the deconstruction work of Jesus. Why does Luke include this? My answer in part is because it wraps up in 10 verses the beliefs at the time that Jesus came to deconstruct. Like what? That it's not our work, it's not our effort, it's not our kindness, it's not our philanthropy that makes us worthy before God but our faith-filled responses in light of who he is. The centurion knew this. The religious leaders didn't. That's number one. But secondly, this event and others like it show us that the kingdom that Jesus ushers in even extends to Roman soldiers stationed in Israel. You could not pick a people group at the time who the religious would have deemed more unworthy. But Jesus tears that ideology down. We are also taught something more about faith in this passage. We looked a lot at faith last week. I, I read a few people this week commenting on how nice this centurion was, and he was. They talked about how kind, generous, humble, and faith-filled he was. I don't agree. I don't believe this centurion was kind, humble, generous, and faith-filled. I believe this centurion was kind, generous, and humble because he was faith-filled. Because that's what faith in God through Jesus Christ should produce in us. Kindness, humility, and generosity, and taking Jesus at his word and acting on it. But we learn something more about faith in this passage as well. We learn that the faith of the centurion is to be our faith too. We, we too are to have great faith. 
You see, the advantages that we have on this side of the cross far outweigh even the advantages that Paul lays out in Romans 9. We got the life of Jesus. We've got the death of Jesus. We've got the resurrection of Jesus. We've got the ascension of Jesus. We've got the coronation of Jesus. We've got the mediation of Jesus. We've got the seal and the guarantee of the spirit of Jesus in us. We've got the full canon of scripture. We've got the promise of his return. Huge advantages. Not even close. And so the question comes, when Jesus looks at you, when Jesus looks at me, what about our faith amazes him most? What about our faith amazes him most? And last, and as we close, and we go into a time of response, we learn something about authority here too. What we learn about authority is, yeah, man, there are emperors, right? There are kings, prime ministers, presidents, centurions. And then there's the authority of Jesus. Jesus came with the authority of God himself. Jesus came as God himself, sent in love by his Father to carry out his Father's will, which would mean what? Which would mean he would come to a place in time where he laid his authority down. Right? And submitted to death. The author of life gave up his spirit. Yes, you know what? The centurion's a good guy in Luke 7. But the hero of the story is Jesus. Doing that for us. He's always the hero of the story. Amen? He's always the hero of the story. Amen. Rise, please, as we pray. Pretty please, thanks. Awkwardly transition to that. <laughs> Let's pray together. Ah, Jesus, we love you. We love you. We, we thank you. We thank you for loving us so much that you're not, you're not willing to let us live with those ideas and customs and traditions that are, that are nothing close to what you have for us. We thank you for your sanctifying work by the spirit that you sent. We thank you for the example of, of what we see here in Luke 7. We thank you for the Bible, this God-breathed book. God-breathed in its production. God-breathed in its proclamation, not just ink on a page. The living word of God. Active, moving, sanctifying word of of God. We love your word and we love your word because you, Jesus, said it brings us to you and we've been brought to you today. We love you today. We love you today. And help us by way of your spirit as we reflect on our lives. All of us right here, we've got a ton of advantage. We're sitting in a, sitting in a building being taught your word. What now then? 
what now? So as we respond and as we go later, I pray that we would apply what we've heard, displaying great faith, great faith in a great God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.